You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Sorry, not 1 Corinthians 13. That was scripture reference. John 13. There is a 13 in there. John 13. John chapter 13. We found your place. We'll pray together. Our gracious God, we are very thankful for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us your will for us. In Christ Jesus, your plan for the church, your plan for the ages to come. And it is our desire that in reading and studying your word, that our eyes and our hearts might be open to its truth and its significance for us. Help us to conform our minds and our hearts, our words and our actions to your word, that you would be glorified in and through your people. Help us in the preaching of your word today. Help us in the hearing and obedience to your word today. Give us grace that the things that we see here might be true among us and in our own hearts, that Christ may be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen. First Corinthians, Corinthians, again, John chapter 13, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Those are the two verses I've been studying this last week, and so I've been thinking a lot on the subject of love. And so consequently, I have had all kinds of 80s songs going on in my head that I haven't heard for years, but those are the lyrics, everything from Air Supply to Chicago to the Thompson Twins to Huey Lewis and the News. And even that hideous show tune, The Love Boat, the theme from that song has been in my head all week long. Now, if you ask me what verse I've been trying to memorize for the last month, I can't recite that to you, but I can recite to you the lyrics from a song that I saw 30 years ago, or heard 30 years ago. I've been trying to get that out of my head. Uh, Love, exciting and new, come aboard, we're expecting you. And I I share that with you, (laughs) just so you can get it into your head, because misery shared is half misery, and joy shared is double joy. So the subject of love, and consuming my thoughts this last week, and this is the third uh, statement that Jesus gives in this beginning of the farewell discourse in John chapter 13. Uh, he has talked about his death, he's talked about his departure, and we looked at the implications of both of those in the glory of the cross last week. And today we are turning our attention to that third statement that he makes, the third subject that he raises, which will be developed all the way through the next four chapters. And that is the statement of the, the command to the disciples to love one another, that they are to love one another. And he gives to us here the example of love that is himself. Uh, and let me give you a little bit of an outline. I mentioned last week that that Lord willing, we would get through the end of chapter 13 today. There's been a little bit of change of plans, and I know you're shocked. Uh, One of these days I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, I told you last week we would do two verses next week. Turns out we're going to do ten, and then you'll actually be shocked. But as I was looking at the end of chapter 13 where where Peter mentions, Lord, uh, where are you going, and I will go with you, and that really, the idea of where Jesus is going and how the disciples were to follow him and when they were to follow him, At the end of chapter 13, that really ties into the beginning of chapter 14. So we'll save it for next week. And today we're just looking at the new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. So if you're taking notes, here is the outline for this morning. 
we're going to see three reasons that Jesus gives why Christians are to love one another. First, because of the edict of our Savior, and that is his command. A new commandment I give to you. That's his edict. Now you say, why do you use the word edict instead of command? Because the next two points both start with E as well. And it's a disease. The second reason is because of the example of the Savior. Just as I have loved you. That's his example. And the third reason is because it is the evidence that we belong to the Savior. So it is the edict of our Savior. It is the example of our Savior. And it is the evidence that we belong to the Savior. Those are the three reasons why we are to love one another. So let's just pick it up there, beginning at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is a new commandment. And this is something that Christians are commanded to do, to love one another. It is also something that since since the new nature is present within us, it is our joy to do. If God had never commanded us to love one another, I still believe that there would be something in the new nature which comes into us as the result of, of God regenerating us at the moment of repentance and faith. There would be something in the heart, in the nature of a Christian that would want to love other Christians, even if there were no commandment to that end. So we are commanded to love one another, but we also have to confess that it is often our joy to do so. It is something that delights the heart of a Christian to love other Christians. And it's something that sometimes comes quite naturally. Now, it doesn't always come naturally, right? Sometimes loving one another is not a joyful delight, but sometimes an arduous duty. We have to confess that some Christians are not lovable. In the sense that our hearts are knit with theirs and there is an instant bond. And not all of you are as lovable as my wife is. My wife is very lovable, I am drawn to her, and I love her. But not every Christian that I meet is as lovable as my wife is. Not every Christian that I meet is as lovable as every other Christian. We have to confess that sometimes it is hard for us to love other Christians. Oftentimes it's a delight and a, and a joy, and, and it's no effort whatsoever. But sometimes it's difficult. The command is not needed if loving other Christians were always a joyful delight. But for the times when it is not necessarily a joyful delight, the command is there to love one another. Now, I think that there's a very practical reason why Jesus is working this into the discourse. Remember, Judas is gone. The, the devil has left, as it were. The, the one who is the devil's own has left this group. So he is, he is just with the 11 disciples. He's just with the genuine Christians. And he tells them that they are to love one another. Now, why in this context at this time is that so important? I think it is because, as Jesus is going to describe later on, there would there would come a time very soon when they would be left alone. In fact, this really follows quite naturally on Jesus on the heels of Jesus discussing his death and his departure. He is going to leave them, so they're going to be left alone. The twelve, the eleven of them, they're going to be left alone. And Jesus is telling them, "You ought to love one another." Could these eleven disciples turn to the world and feel loved, or feel love? No, because he's going to tell them later on. The world is going to hate you, and just as it hated me, so they will also hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And just as the world hated Christ, so it hated the disciples. Just as the world tried to kill Christ, so it tried to kill his disciples. Just as the world uh, hated everything that Jesus stood for, they would hate everything that the disciples stood for. So they were going to face a hostile environment, a hostile world. Religious leaders who would try and persecute them and kill them just as they did Jesus. And we see that in the beginning of the book of Acts. Actually, we see that all the way through the book of Acts, where they pursued and persecuted Christians. And they were hated by the world. So this command, love one another, is important uh, in, to a people who would be surrounded by a hostile world, who sought their undoing and their destruction. 
as the world becomes more and more hostile toward us. Now, the world system is already hostile toward Christians. But as the world in our culture and in our environment and in our nation becomes increasingly hostile and hates Christians more and more, and I think that they will, it is going to be all that much more important that we understand what loving one another is. We're not going to be able to turn to the world for affirmation. We're not going to be able to turn to the world for expressions of love and affection. It is going to be all increasingly more important that Christians love one another. That is the command. Now, what is what does Jesus mean when he says, it is a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another? A new commandment. Was this a new commandment? Is this something the disciples had never heard of before? Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments? What did he say? They were trying to trip him up. And he said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and the strength. And the second commandment is like it, and it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They understood those to be commandments from the Old Testament law. And in fact, in that passage, Matthew 22, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18, which reads, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And Leviticus 19, verse 34, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So James 2, verse 8, calls that the perfect law of liberty. And he says, if you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So the disciples, the, the whole idea of not of loving your neighbor or loving somebody else was not foreign to the disciples. When Jesus says, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, it's not like the disciples said, what is this love thing of which you speak? Tell us more. This is foreign to our ears. They would have understood this to be a command from the Old Testament. So what then does Jesus mean when he says this is a new commandment? that you love one another. What does he mean, new commandment? That's somewhat of a difficult question to answer. We, can't, we cannot say that Jesus did not know anything about that commandment from the Old Testament. So what did he mean that it is new? In what sense is it new? Let me suggest a couple of things. It might be new in the sense that this was a higher standard than they had previously known. You know how Jesus did this with the law? Sometimes he would take a standard of the law and he would... Uh, begin to expound upon it in such a way that when you when you saw it in the light of his teaching, all of a sudden it became higher than it was before. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And suddenly the Jews who said, I've never committed adultery, I've been faithful to my wife, even though mentally they've been unfaithful, suddenly they realize, I violated that commandment in spirit, in the heart. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Dishonoring your parents is not just a matter of physical disobedience. It's something, it's an attitude of the heart and a mental disobedience as well. So these standards that Jesus would unfold and unpack, suddenly they take on not a, not a new meaning, a meaning that has been there all the time, but suddenly those commandments, those aspects of the law are raised to a higher standard. Same thing here, I think, with the love one another. You are to love one another. But now the standard is not you are to love another as yourself, but now it's a higher standard. You are to love others more than yourself. That really is the example that Jesus set. He did not consider his own interests ahead of others. Put the interests of other people ahead of his own. Now, we are not just to love one another as we love ourselves. That would be equal to ourselves, which is hard enough, right? We are to love one another more than we love ourselves. But it's my self-love that is, constitutes me to be a sinner. It is my self-love which is at the heart of my sin problem. So now it is a higher standard. Or it might be that what Jesus is doing here with this law and calling it a new commandment is not just that it is a higher standard, but, but a different direction of this love. Notice that Jesus is saying you ought to love one another. Some have suggested that what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's not just talking about generally loving all people, sort of a 
a peanut butter love that you just have for everybody, but that there is supposed to be a unique, discriminating, specific love for the brethren. You are to love one another. So now, what is new about this command is not that we love, but the objects of our love. In other words, I'm to love the guy that I see at the grocery store. I'm walking through the grocery store, I see somebody there who's buying something, and I'm walking by him. I don't have any justification for hating him. I shouldn't hate him. I shouldn't express any hatred for him. In fact, I'm commanded that I should love him, and I should have a love for him, and a care and a concern for him. But when it comes to the brethren, when it comes to Christians, all of a sudden, that's different. And that may be what is new about it, is that this love now is supposed to be directed in an intense way toward those who are believers. Or third, it might be that what Jesus is saying is he is taking an an old commandment and raising it to a much higher position. In other words, he's saying, "Um, I'm singling out this commandment for you and I am placing it above all others, higher than all others. It might be some combination of all of that. But we can say this, that when Jesus speaks of love and especially in light of the cross of Christ, suddenly the command to love one another takes on a new significance uh, we see it in a new clarity. We have in, in Jesus a new example of it. And so the obligations that are attached to it are new. In that way, he takes an old commandment, but by unpackaging it and sort of reapplying it, it becomes new all over again. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, you are to, uh, this is a new commandment that you are to love one another. Now the word love there is a word that you can't be a Christian very long without running into. It's the word agape. It is the word that speaks of an, a one directional or unidirectional love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that considers the interests of its object ahead of its own. It is, a, it is not the erotic type love that is appropriate between a man and his wife. It's not the brotherly love that you might have for your neighbor who's an unsaved individual who you just kind of view as a friend and you lend tools to and you borrow tools from him. Not that type of love. This is a one-directional love. In fact, it is a love that, that is an act of the will that seeks the best for the object, for the one that is loved. And it is a love that puts itself out and acts on behalf of another even when the other is entirely unworthy of that love and even when that love is not returned back to the lover. So it is a love that is willing to say, I will love you even if I get absolutely nothing in return and even though you be completely unlovable. In fact, this love really shines when the object of the love is unlovable. And the more unlovable the object of the love, the more magnificent the love appears. And the more magnificent the love is when the object of it is really, really unlovable. That's what I think magnifies God's love for us. God's love for us. Think of, think of who we are and what we look like in the eyes of God in our sin and in our depravity. And that He would love us with this love. That is the love that he is describing. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not a pitter-patter of the heart. Uh, Sometimes none of those things can be present, but love can be present because it is an act of the will that does something on behalf of somebody else and sacrifices for them. The New Testament authors uh, understood this and they speak of love in their various writings. I'll just read to you a couple of them. Romans chapter 12, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hebrews 13, verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. 
1 Peter 1, verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. These are the commands of the New Testament. Uh, to the various gatherings of believers, this is what God has done, and so you are to love one another as a result of this. And John, probably more than Peter and Paul, uh, expounds upon the theme of love more than any of the other New Testament writers. And you see this in the three epistles that bear his name at the end of our New Testament, first, second, and third John, and especially in this gospel. John, because of his emphasis on love, is prob- probably that is why he is called the disciple of love or the apostle of love. I mentioned a few weeks ago that when John is portrayed in writings, he's always, or in drawings, that he is always kind of pictured as the effeminate, girly man with the long hair, and he looks gaunt and sissified and all of that. It is probably because that is their, the artist's view of love, and they distinguish John from the other apostles. I don't think that there's anything necessarily effeminate or feminine or gaunt or sickly about somebody who loves like a man loves. Loving is a very masculine trait. So it's not necessarily effeminate for us to be loving in our conduct toward one another. I think it's a very manly thing. But listen to what John says. First John 2.10, I'll just give you a couple of passages from his epistles. First John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. First John 3, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know the love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren." But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. First John 3, verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. First John 4, beloved, let us not, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. First John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And then in 2 John, verse 5, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which you have had from the beginning that we love one another. And there John uses the very same language, a new commandment. That's not, not something new, not something you've never heard, but this is the commandment that we love one another. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Quite frankly, because I love you. If I were not a Christian, I would not have any type of love in my heart for Christians. That is not the natural inclination of the unbeliever. The one who is locked in darkness and hates the truth and hates righteousness, hates those who are righteous. And that's John's point in in that first epistle. By this we know that we have passed out of death and into life. Do you love the brethren? Do you have in your heart a love for Christians? If you do not have in your heart a love for Christians, be sure of this. You are not one. If you do not love the brethren, you are not one of them. But the one who loves the brethren, the one who loves Christians, is himself a Christian, is himself a believer. That is the evidence of it. 
So we are to love one another because it is commanded by our Savior. It is His edict. Second, it is His example. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So Jesus is the example for this. So I can get up here and give you all kinds of things that you ought to do if you want to demonstrate love for one another. And if I wanted to make myself feel really good, I could say, here are the ways that I have shown love to you. And so here are all the ways that you ought to show love to one another. But really, I'm not the example, and you are not the example, but Scripture is the standard. And who is the example that is given to us? Jesus. We are to love one another just as He loved us. Now, I can feel really good about my love for you and my love for my wife and for my kids and for everybody else. I can feel really good about that love and think that I'm doing really good until I compare myself with Jesus. And then I realize how quickly I fall short of this commandment to love one another just as He has loved us. What does his love look like? Well, first, it was a humble love. It was a love that considered the interests of others ahead of his own, as I mentioned already, Philippians chapter 2. If there is any consolation of love, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his own interests ahead of others, but considered other people as more important than himself, and the interests of others ahead of his own. It was a humble love. It was a love that was was willing to leave the glories of heaven and the worship of angels and all of the conveniences of glory to come down here and to live amongst us, and to show us love, and then to die. And that's the second characteristic of His love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that gives. We almost cannot even think of the love of Christ apart from thinking of His sacrifice. That He loved His bride, the church, and He gave Himself up for her. That He loved His sheep, and He gave Himself up for them, and He laid down His life for them. That He loved His church and was willing to die on behalf of His church. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that must in itself give. Now you say, well, that's fine. I've been willing to sacrifice. And a lot of guys would say that. A lot of men would say that for their wives. I would be willing to take a bullet for you. I would be willing to lay down my life for you. I would be the one to go downstairs when I hear a noise at night and carry the gun down and, and make sure that I defend my family. And if need be, I would die for my family. And that's great. But you're not going to be asked to die for your family each and every day. The real question is, are you willing to do the dishes for your wife? Not are you willing to take a, a bullet, but are you willing to do the dishes? What about the daily sacrifices? See, that's where it becomes really difficult, doesn't it? It's one thing to say, I would do this for you. But how about something much smaller? Just a daily thing. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that has to say, what is the best for the object of my love? And what am I willing to do to sacrifice and to give myself for that individual? It is a love that must give itself because it's a sacrificial love. You can look at other qualities and characteristics of it. We could go to 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm, I'm not going to do, but it was an encouraging love. It was a forgiving love. It was an enduring love. It's an eternal love. All of those characteristics also apply to the love that we are to have for one another. That is the example that Jesus has given to us. Now, I realize that the minute we look at the example of Jesus, we realize how far short we fall, and that is where the gospel comes in, because I understand that not a person in this room has loved anybody else in this room the way that Christ has loved them. It is impossible for us to do that. We cannot because we are selfish, sinful, rotten people. And our love does not measure up to that standard. That's the standard. And we pursue it. We look to it. We measure ourselves against it. But at the same time, I understand I have not done that. And I can't do that. So should I keep my face in the dirt and pistol whip myself and and feel bad about it? No, the gospel tells me that there is one who loved me the way that I ought to love others. And though I fall short, I have been forgiven. And my standing with Him does not depend on how well I love other people. I don't love other people in order to gain His favor. I have His favor, and I have His forgiveness, and so I love other people as a result of that. And in the Gospel, I have the power and the ability and the indwelling Spirit of God, and so do you, to love my neighbor as myself. And so we simply pray to be conformed to the image of Christ, 
and to pursue holiness and to pursue what it means to love as Christ loved. And we set our minds to do that and we seek to excel at it still more and more because he is the example. So we love one another because it is the edict of the Savior, because it is the example of the Savior. And third, because it is the evidence that we belong to the Savior. Verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the distinguishing mark of Christians. That Christians love other Christians. By this, that is, by your love for one another, all men, those outside, will see it and will know that you are my disciples. Now we need to at this point think very carefully and clearly about what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. So let me offer a couple observations for the sake of clarification. This does not mean that love is our testimony. This does not mean that love is our testimony. And we have to be careful that we don't, we don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, I don't need to share the gospel with anybody. I just need to love them. And if I just go out and show love, work at a soup kitchen, sweep somebody's floor, split somebody's wood, that, that that will be a demonstration of my love for them and that they will be wooed to the Savior as a result of my love. You have heard churches, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody in, in, in particular, I have any of them in mind, but you have heard of churches that will cancel their Sunday service and go out into the community and split wood and fix screen doors and do all of that stuff to show the community how much they love, one, love the community. Love is not our testimony. Love is not the gospel. In fact, there is no evangelistic value in love at all. Love does not evangelize. We are not called to, to woo people by loving them. We are called to love each other, and that will indicate to the watching world that we belong to one another. Love is not the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It is the message of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, and that by repentance and faith I can be forgiven because of what Christ did on a cross for me. Now You've heard people say this, but well, I'm not going to preach at them. I'm just going to love on them. I'm just going to love on them. First, can we get rid of that language, love on them? That's just creepy. It is creepy. It comes. It has to come from the South because every time I hear it, and this is not a slander against anybody from the South, every time I hear it, I hear a Southern accent. We're just going to love on them. It's creepy language. There is there is nobody in this world that I want loving on me other than my wife. Nobody. I don't, I don't want Mel loving on me. I don't want Dave loving on me. I especially don't want Thomas loving on me. So let's just do away with that evangelical vernacular and get rid of the whole idea of loving on them. Because second, you will love somebody all the way to hell. Nobody can get saved by watching you love anybody. They can't. They have to hear the gospel. That is the gospel. So love is not our testimony. Love is not the gospel. Love does not woo anybody. All love serves to do is indicate that we are among the brethren. Love is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. So that the outside world looks at the Christian and says, look how he loves other Christians. He must belong to Christ. The outside world doesn't look at Christians loving each other and say, well, I want to be one of them. I want to repent of my sin and trust Christ for salvation. There's no evangelistic value in love. Nobody can get saved watching you love. They have to hear the gospel. Second, and this is key and I think important in our day and age, it does not mean that if the world says that what we are doing is unloving, that we are necessarily being unloving. It doesn't mean that if the world says we're unloving, that we're necessarily doing something wrong. Now, maybe we are, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily are. Is it possible that unbelievers, pagans, will view you as being unloving toward them? 
Is that possible? Not just possible, probable. And, and I will tell you why. Well, first, let's, let's go to the text for just a second. I want you to see a distinction that Jesus is making in the text. Then I will tell you why unbelievers think that we are unloving toward them. Notice that in the text there are two groups of people mentioned. There is the one another, and then there is the all men. The one another and the all men. Now you'll see the one another mentioned three times, almost as if Jesus is emphasizing something. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now what type of love is Jesus describing here? The love that Christians have for the world? Or the love that Christians have for one another. Jesus is not talking about the love that we are to have for unbelievers. Now this doesn't mean that we're free to hate them. This doesn't mean that we're free to to be mean to them or to not be compassionate or to not love them. We're not free to do any of that. But keep in mind that in this text, Jesus is describing the love that exists between believers. It is Christian to Christian, brother to brother. It is within His kingdom, within His church. He's talking about the love that the sheep have For one another. There is the one another. That is the love that exists in the community of believers directed toward the community of believers. And when the outside world sees that, the love that we have for each other, not for them, but for each other, then they know that we are Christ's disciples. It is the love that exists in the church and between Christians that indicates to those outside the church that we are actually in the church. And you know how they know that? You know how they know that we are Christians? By our love, by our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians. That's another song that's been in my head all week long. You know how they, why it is that they will know that we are Christians by our love? Because unbelievers look at the love that a Christian has for other Christians and says, I don't have that love for those people. Those, I don't want to be with those people. I don't enjoy those people. So if he loves those people, he must be one of those people. Because it's a supernatural love. It's not something that the world has for Christians. So just because an unbeliever says that we are unloving toward them does not mean that we are necessarily doing anything wrong. And here's why. I have gotten into conversations with people on that that great theological bulletin board called Facebook. And any time that you mention that somebody, unless they will abandon their lifestyle of sin and repent and trust Christ for salvation, that their sin will drag them to hell and that they need Christ to be forgiven for their sin. Because of whatever proclivity that they have, whatever sin they have, you know what they're likely to say? That is unloving. Because unbelievers do not understand love. They can't. They're darkened in their intellect. They're darkened in their understanding. They're blind to the truth. Their idea of love is a soapy, soupy, sentimental bunch of nonsense that they feel loved if you affirm them in their lifestyle, if you affirm everything that they do, if you make them feel good, and if your world revolves around them as much as their world revolves around them, then they feel loved. That's how the unbelieving world views love. And so they will charge us as Christians with not being loving when the opposite is the case, because it is not loving to be quiet about the truth or to compromise the truth just to make somebody feel good and to pad their way all the way to hell so that they can die in their sins all the while feeling good about themselves just so they wouldn't think that you are unloving. The unbelieving world has no concept of what true biblical love is or what it looks like or how it is expressed. They do not have the spiritual capacity to either understand it or to practice it. So will the unbelieving world sometimes think that we are unloving toward them? Yes, they will think that. But that doesn't change what the nature of true love is. And if we want to be quite frank about it, then we have to confess that ultimately 
whether an unbeliever feels that I have loved them up to their standard of what love is, is ultimately not even my first concern. Second concern, third concern, or tenth concern. It's way down the list. Because the issue really is truth. And what does God's Word say? And have I loved them truly in a biblical way? Not according to how they want to feel loved, but biblically what love really is. So just because an unbeliever says, I don't feel loved by you, or that seems unloving, does not necessarily mean that we have done anything wrong. Jesus is not saying unbelievers will be wooed to the gospel when they see how much the church loves unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. He is saying when the outsiders look at you and they see the love that exists between believers, they will know that those people are my disciples. Now, how are we doing as a church? I was kind of evaluating myself in light of all of this. Um, and evaluating us as a church in light of all of this. And I've said this before on a multitude of occasions. I think this is a very unique body of believers, and I want you to be encouraged that, at least from the perspective of the church leadership, I think that there's a lot of love amongst the brethren in this body. A tremendous amount. I see some of it expressed, but I realize that even though I know most of you and know most of you, a lot of you very well, I don't see probably a fraction of the love that is expressed between brethren in this congregation. So, I think the Kootenai Community Church and the love that is expressed here is much like that that Paul mentions in the Fest to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So Paul mentions the Thessalonians, and they were an example. They weren't like the Corinthian church, full of love. And he says, when it comes to the love of the brethren, you, you have this down, you understand it, you're taught by God, you're doing it, and it's great but excel at it still more. And he encourages them to, to buckle down and do it even more. It's not like you reach a point where you say, you know what, I think we're loving each other enough. It's all good. I've showed as much love to you as I need to, as I can. I'm good for this week. I've reached my love quota. So now I can stop. There never comes a point where we do that. Instead, we, we ought to buckle down on it and do what Paul says. Excel at it still more and more. We work at it and we say, how, how can I love people more? How can I want to spend more time with them? How can I express my love to them more? How can I single out individuals and meet their needs or give myself for them? That's what we ought to be pursuing. And Paul writes to the, uh, the Thessalonians the second time in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So the first epistle, you've got it down. You understand it. You're doing it. Excel at it. Do it still more and more. Second epistle, we give thanks because your love for one another increases and abounds still more. And it is my heart's desire and my prayer that that might be the true even here amongst us. That though we do it, and though there are expressions of it, that we might seek to excel at it, and that God may continue to produce that abundant fruit of righteousness in the lives of His people here. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful to You that You have loved us and You have given us an example in Your Son of what that looks like and how we ought to do it. May You help us to think rightly about love and its implications, and may You continue to produce that fruit of righteousness and the fruit of Your Spirit in us and around us as we seek to do that still more and more. Help us as a body to excel at that and to pursue it and to do it continually, that You would be glorified as we seek to do that, that we might demonstrate to one another and to a watching world that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, for we love one another. And give us that love and increase it in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.